The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, where we give you the insider perspective on the college admissions and finance process. So today we're going to be talking about financial aid advice that's too good to be true, trying to separate the myths from the truth. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard, ooh, is it true that you can reposition your assets to create more financial aid eligibility? Maybe there are ways to hide your assets so you can lower your family's expected contribution or maybe even get colleges to consider your child financially independent of you. My colleague and former Tufts and Boston University senior financial aid officer, Shannon Vasconcellos, is going to come by and talk to us about these um, myths. Unfortunately, they are myths in many cases, um, and offer some real ethical tips that you can use to maximize your financial aid eligibility. And then former Holy Cross and Babson Senior Admissions Officer Kimberly Aselta is also going to join us to discuss how the high school that students attend impact Uh, impacts their college applications. And then at the end of the show, don't forget, send us your admissions and finance questions to gettingin.voiceamerica.gmail.com. We're going to answer as many as we can in our final segment. But first, I'd like to welcome Kathy Ventura, who heads up the guidance department for Wallington High School in New Jersey. And she's here to talk about how to get the most out of your relationship with either your or your child's guidance counselor. And welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Well, we're excited to have you here because um, one thing that I tell all of my students and that when I talk to families, I'm, I, I always want to be clear with them as well, is that the relationship with your guidance counselor is a really important part of yes. the process. And um, at some schools, you students may have a lot of access to their guidance counselor. At other schools, they may have very little access to their guidance counselor. And so... Um, what I was hoping to shed some light on today is from the guidance counselor's perspective, you know, how you try to develop those relationships with students. And I guess my first question for you is, how do you get that relationship started with the students when they start at the high school? Well, um, we're fortunate nowadays to have elementary school counselors as well. So I think students start to see that there is somebody in the building that they can trust and they can go to and they can kind of get to know themselves a little bit better. So when the students get to ninth grade, a guidance counselor or school counselor, as they're referred to now, um, is not really a stranger. So um, we are available and students are often not too wary about coming to meet us in our offices, and we often try to get into the classrooms as well as an entry to get to know them as high school students as they transition. Right, and then you also mentioned that you do some stuff at the end of middle school with parents. Um, 
in terms of making that transition a little bit easier. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I, we really find that an eighth grade student transitioning to ninth grade is at such a pivotal time um, because once they get into the flow of high school, it gets very busy. It gets very um, uh, targeted towards, you know, where they think they want to go. But when they move from eighth grade to ninth grade, we want to give them as much support as we can so that their journey in high school isn't too haphazard. We want them to know exactly what they think about their own goals and aspirations. So we do some career testing with them. Um, we do uh, use in Wallington, we use a Naviance tool, which gives us a program called Career Key, and it really focuses on interests and abilities. So we find that if students really know what they're interested in, that is really a wonderful way for them to focus, rather than just maybe something that they can do because they've been gifted with an academic strength. They really have to show up to work every day, and they have to like what they do. So we want to, we want them to get to know that, and we build that into the programs from eighth to ninth as often as we can. Gotcha. So I think one of the big takeaways for me in this is, um, for those of you who are listening, is you want to pay attention to those invites that come from your mm-hmm. guidance department. Because while this is the way that you do it at Wellington, there may be different ways that they do it at other schools, but they are reaching out and they are making s- things available to families and students. Absolutely. And you want to make right. sure that you're paying attention mm-hmm. to that. Right. Yes, for sure. Right. Um, and, you know, there are invitations that are done through emails, through um, notes that go home, you know, the traditional old way. Um, But every one of them is tailored to a certain topic. And often parents can call to the school and ask for a topic to be explored. For instance, the new SATs that, that are out there now, a lot of parents have questions about that and where that is going to take their students. So we're going to do a workshop based on that because we found that there was a need for that. So reaching out from the parent to the school is also very beneficial. And actually, that was one of my next questions, and that is certainly there are things that you're doing for students in the school setting. You mentioned that you are visiting classrooms and um, doing some stuff with students there. Um, But what about if you're a parent, and I certainly know plenty of students who might fit into this description, and you might say to your child, can you stop by your guidance counselor's office tomorrow and ask her this question? And then the student comes home and they say, oh, I forgot, or Mm -hmm. they really aren't going to do it because they're too nervous nervous to do it or too shy. Exactly. Um, So what are the avenues for parents to reach out to guidance counselors if the student isn't going to be the one who's going to forge that relationship? Well, the school-based email system has changed everything. Um, You know, parents can reach out while they're busy at work. They can reach out in the evening when they're thinking of a question. Um, And we often, you know, are running from here to there as well. So sometimes trying to catch each other, even if it's the student to the counselor or the parent to the counselor. Um, Emails are wonderful uh, ways to find communication with each other. Um, We can answer each other at various times, and we can, you know, thread that conversation in an ongoing going sort of way to keep keep answering new questions that might come forward. Um, also using tools that the school system might have. A lot of schools now are on Twitter, they're on Facebook, they have web pages. There are so many ways that through social media now that we can connect with each other. So it's around the clock and it's so much better than it once was. And I think the, the walls are coming down as far as communication is concerned. Which is great because I yeah. do know that mm-hmm. you know everybody has lots of questions as they go through this process. And for many mm-hmm. people, when their child is going through the process, it's the first time that they've gone through the Absolutely, process. Or certainly yeah. mm-hmm. the first time in modern, in, since they went through the process themselves. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. things have changed quite a bit. Um, 
One thing, in most high school seniors are going to require a letter of recommendation, um, but often, especially nationwide, I think the average um, these days is approaching 500 students to every one guidance counselor. Now, certainly mm-hmm. that doesn't describe every high school, right. but the numbers can be a little daunting. And when I worked at Penn, I used to visit a high school where there were a 1,000 seniors and um, and two guidance counselors. So I actually saw mm-hmm. firsthand what happens when you have 500 kids to one, it's very, it's basically impossible for them to individually know every one of those students. So uh, what I've been seeing a lot of schools start to implement are brag sheets. And do you find Mm -hmm. those useful? They're very useful because um, we can, if if the populations are really big for a counselor, many counselors are ambitious enough to take it upon themselves to start writing some of them for their students over the summer months. So Mm -hmm. the only way that they can do that is through a brag sheet. And the students are very good about telling um, details about themselves on a brag sheet because it really, if it's carefully designed, it helps them to delineate their strengths and it will help them to tell us the kinds of things that maybe we would never know about them. And it fills in some of the blanks. Um, When we get a very well done brag sheet, it can help us to almost build the whole entire letter. And yep. um, it, it, it comes out very nicely and very personal. So um, those are usually posted on school websites now so that students can download, they can work on it, they can email it back. Again, that communication is very simple now. Um, so it's something that can start to be done at the end of the junior year as opposed to waiting too long. And then you can let your counselors have that over the course of the summer. So as those tasks start to build up, everybody's ahead of the game, especially if they're applying early admission. We want to have those things in place so that there's no delay with deadlines. Right, and I think one really important point to make here is that if you go to a school uh, or your child goes to a school where brag sheets are not something that they have introduced, there's certainly nothing preventing you from kind of creating your own brag sheet. So what kinds of questions do you typically ask on those sheets? Um, You know, first and foremost, we we have to ask about um, the types of activities they belong to in school, Um, what kinds of clubs, what kinds of sports, what kinds of leadership positions they've kind of taken on during the course of their school years. We talk about their academics, but we want them to just highlight what they felt were their their best courses, where they found the the greatest joy in taking in, in taking some classes. Because we can look up the grades and we can look up the academic record, but we can't really get into the heart of what really makes them tick without a really well written brag sheet. So they talk about the things that made school come alive for them. They talk about all of the organizations that filled in the blanks in between their classes, and then we often ask about what they did outside of school, because those are the things that oftentimes we would never know about. We'll find out if they worked at, you know, some local organizations doing community service, if they've traveled internationally and done some, you know, volunteer work, or they've just had simply some travel experience that broadened their horizons a little bit. Um, So those things are also very important for us to know about. Um, And then we ask them what they think their career goals are going to be, um, what they really think they're thinking of majoring in, so that we make sure that one of the things that they're doing is that they're applying to schools that definitely have that major, because oftentimes students love a school and love a trajectory, but it doesn't match their interests and their goals. So it kind of heads us off at the pass a little bit, so we can help them in case they're veering down a you know, maybe a haphazard road a little bit. 
Right, exactly. And then I think the other cool thing about a lot of the brag sheets that I've seen is that there's a parent portion because mm-hmm. I know that parents often feel that and, and I think they're probably right. They know their kids the best and um, they've been there from the beginning. Not yeah. that brag sheets really want to include uh, your child's accomplishments from first grade, but the point is that you know your child well. And so, um, again, with the parent sections, it's important to fill those out just as carefully as the student sections are completed. And one piece of advice that I give to all parents and students is to be as concrete as possible. You know, give mm-hmm. them real examples that they can use rather than just saying you work hard. Exactly. Give some specific mm-hmm. examples of it, yes. right? So, yes. so my last question for you is this. Um, the college admission cycle seems to happen earlier and earlier every year, and we could debate the pluses and minuses of that, but we'd probably be here till tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you how do you advise working with your guidance counselor if you know that you're going to have a really early application? Maybe you're going to apply to a school where they're going to start accepting applications um, in September, maybe even a little bit earlier. How do you best work with your guidance counselor if you, uh, you you're going to need them to send out your pieces of the application from the school? Um, well, we really do like our students to try to do a mock application at the end of junior year, and that opens up some discussions with us, and that lets us know um, where they might be headed, so it kind of heads us off at the pass a little bit, so we'll get to know the students who might need us to step in for them very quickly. Um, we do set up our calendars. We do try to make sure that we're doing what we need to do for each and every student, and we maintain those communications, as I mentioned before. We talk over the summer. Um, we make sure that the students are on target with their calendar dates, as we are too. Um, they often have summer projects that they're working on in some of their AP classes, which requires communication back and forth with the teachers. So there's really never a quiet time, and we get everybody on board, the teachers, the counselors, the parents, to make sure that we're all kind of working as a team to get it done in the, in the way that it needs to get done. And then, you know, hopefully they still believe what they thought they would believe as they started the journey and want to move forward on that because it is a, it is a little bit of a tenuous process when they make that decision so early, but we want to really support them if they know what way they want to go as right. far as their choices along with their family. Yeah, and I think those are all really great points to think about. And bottom line for me is don't spring this on anyone. If you no. know you're <laughs> going to have to get an application out for September mm-hmm. 1, don't be walking into school at August 31st and announcing it in the guidance department. Exactly, like exactly. The well, thanks again. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Thank you so much for joining us, Kathy. And uh, stick around, everybody. Shannon Vasconcellos is going to be here to talk through financial aid advice that's good to be, too good to be true in just a moment. Okay, thank you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. So as promised, Shannon Vasconcellos is here today. And you may remember her. She joined us a couple of episodes ago to talk about negotiating stronger financial aid packages, basically how to ask for more money. And now she's back, which I'm very excited about. And we were just laughing over the break about um, some of these crazy myths and rumors that get started. And so she's here today to talk through some of those more persistent financial aid myths. And hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So we were laughing about something that just seemed utterly insane to us over the break, but I won't talk about it here because it's not (laughs) college finance related, but um, I have lots of questions for you. So some parents are concerned, of course, that they make too much money. So maybe they make too much money to qualify for financial aid, but they're worried that they don't make enough money to actually afford college. And so it seems like it's a fairly common thing for people to be talking about, you know, is there any way to get my information excluded from the financial aid calculations altogether? Um, Can the student be considered financially independent of their parents? I've heard if you don't claim your child in your tax return, maybe you don't have to report your financial information on the FAFSA. Is any of this true? It would be nice, wouldn't it? But unfortunately, (laughs) no, it's not true. Um, The the tax issue in particular I hear all the time, um, and it's totally untrue. Your tax dependency is totally separate from financial aid dependency. They don't care if you don't claim your child on your tax return. Um, there are a handful of qualifications that automatically make a student independent for financial aid purposes. Um, if they're 24 years old, if they're in graduate school, if they're married or have kids of their own, uh, if they're homeless or they've been in foster care, those are the big ones. And they're really criteria that uh, most traditional 18-year-old college students don't meet. Right. Um, if you don't meet one of those criteria, it is possible to appeal to the college, um, to their financial aid office, to have your parents' information waived. Um, they call it requesting a dependency override, if folks want to know the technical term. But honestly, those overrides are very rarely approved. You, you really have to be able to prove to the financial aid office that you are, in fact, truly independent of your parents, that it's really impossible for you to access their financial information. Um, when I was working in an aid office, really the only times we approved those overrides is if there seemed to be some kind of 
abuse or neglect in the household, like it was truly dangerous for the student to try and access their parents' financial information. Otherwise, we wanted the parents' info. So, you know, unfortunately, just not claiming your kid on your tax return isn't going to work. If it was that easy, every parent would do it. Everyone would do it. Exactly. So, you know, I put that in the category. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Exactly. Exactly. And in my experience, too, not in an aid office, but just in an admissions office, when you have a student who really fits that criteria of being independent or where it's dangerous, that's usually a situation where the entire community is rallying around that student and vouching for them and... Exactly. Um, I, I'm guessing you required quite a bit of documentation mm-hmm. and things like that. Exactly yeah. right. So, all right, assuming parents do have to provide their financials to the college, which I think we've clearly established that uh, they do. They do, um, yep. I, I've certainly heard people talking about maybe there are ways you can hide some money from the financial aid office, like if you put all your money in your house or into your retirement accounts or into an insurance policy, it won't go into the financial aid calculation. So does this strategy work? Yeah, so that one's a, a little trickier because, like, a lot of the, the myths out there, that one is based on a grain of truth, but unfortunately doesn't end up working for a lot of people. Um, so it is, in fact, true that your home equity, retirement accounts, insurance policies, they don't count as assets in the federal financial aid formula. They don't ask about them on the FAFSA at all. Um, But uh, while your (laughs) retirement accounts are actually pretty invisible everywhere, um, there are a number of colleges, about 400 of them, most of them private schools, that have decided, wait a second, Uh, regardless of what the FAFSA says, we think your home equity is important. We think if you have insurance policies, those are important. They're relevant to your neediness um, that we're trying to figure out. So we're going to ask for this other financial aid application called the CSS Profile that asks about those things. Um, so at a lot of schools, you know, hiding your money in your house or in an insurance policy won't really work because they do ask about them. So that's the, that's the first issue. And then the other issue with trying to hide your money is that the money you've got in the bank actually has a pretty small effect on the financial aid calculations. It's really your income that determines for the most part if you're going to qualify for aid or not. Um, your assets do come into the equation, but to a really small extent, um, every family has the first chunk of their assets protected where they don't enter the, the formula at all. Uh, and it actually depends on the parent's age, but it's, it's usually kind of the first thirty or $40,000 that a family has, totally invisible for financial aid purposes. So don't worry about hiding it. Um, mm-hmm. And then if you've got more money than that in the bank... There's a very small assessment rate on assets um, at most 6%. So that means, you know, for every $10,000 you've got in the bank, you might lose out on at most $600 of financial aid. So it's a really minor effect, so probably not worth going through the effort to hide your money. Um, And then once you do hide your money, the problem is, is now it's less available to you. So, you know, you did have a bunch of money in cash that you could have easily spent on college. Now you put it into your house. So if you want to access that money, you've got to take a home equity loan out and pay interest to the bank to get access to it. You know, if you put the money in your retirement accounts, 
uh, and you're not of retirement age, now you've got to pay a 10% early withdrawal penalty to get at that money. So if you actually need the money to pay for college, as most people will, now you've got a problem getting at it. So I think right. that that's the, the biggest issue with trying to hide your money. And then the other thing is if you've got enough in assets where that kind of very small assessment rate is actually making a difference to the calculations, I'm guessing that your income is probably too high to qualify for financial aid anyway, and it was all really for naught, um, so probably not worth the effort. All right. So then with all of those things in mind, is there good advice about repositioning assets that you like to share with families? Yeah, I would say the biggest piece of advice I can give families about their assets is to avoid saving for college in their child's name. Um, so I said, you know, parents have that low 6% assessment rate on their assets. And, again, the first chunk of their assets are totally protected and invisible for financial aid purposes. Students, on the other hand, have no assets protected. Everything's up for grabs. And they are expected to contribute a full 20 or 25% of their assets to college each year. So the formula is much, much harsher on student-owned assets, um, the, kind of the theory being parents have lots of other financial responsibilities. We can't expect them to contribute everything they have to college. Kids don't really have other responsibilities. Everything they've got can go to college. So if you think that you might have some aid eligibility, avoid saving significant money in your kids' names. Um, if you're out there listening and you've already got money saved in your kids' name, I would say that the two best options are simply to spend that money down before they're applying uh, for college so that it can't be taken into consideration uh, on expenses that you already have for them are already going to be paying. Spend it out of their account instead of yours. The other, other strategy that you can use is depositing um, your kids' money into a child-owned 529 savings plan. 529s are, are college-specific savings plans. Um, and there's a weird kind of quirk in the financial aid regulations that say that all 529s in the family, even those actually owned by students, they're all considered parent assets as far as the financial aid formula is concerned. Um, so they get the gentler treatment. So that's a kind of a good place you can move money to actually make the aid calculations work out more favorably to you. Um, the, the other thing about assets that can be helpful is, again, in terms of the parent assets, they really don't hurt you much as it is. Um, so I wouldn't recommend, you know, going on a shopping spree just to eliminate money you've got in the bank. Um, but if you did have some big kind of payments looming out there that you were going to have soon, you know, like you've got a car on its last legs you're going to have to replace soon, uh, you're going to need to put a new roof on the house, you know, something like that. Um, if you're going to have those big payments coming up anyway, it probably does make sense to make those payments before applying for college and before applying for financial aid to bring down that bank account balance a bit, and that will at least help you a little bit in terms of the financial aid rather than waiting till after you've already applied for financial aid, then having to make these big payments when the colleges still think you have a lot of money in the bank. So that's another thing that you can do. Okay, well, so we only have a couple more minutes, but I think there's, I have a few more questions I'm hoping we can get to, but so you just said that aid calculations are mostly based on income, and I have heard that if I increase my 401k contributions, I can make my income look smaller to financial aid offices. Does that work? (laughs) No, (laughs) unfortunately not. Another myth. Um, The financial aid is based on your total income 
from the year prior to your actually applying to college. So for kids who have applied for this uh, to start in September 2015, it's based on their parents' 2014 income, and it's the parents' total income. They ask for your adjusted gross income. They ask for what you contributed to your retirement accounts. They add them all together to get at your total income. So they don't let you hide money in your retirement accounts that way, unfortunately. Gotcha. All right. So then um, in the time we have left, any good income advice that you could offer? Yeah, so it's limited because I would say that for most of us who work on a salary, our income just is what it is and there's not much you can do about it. Um, But one thing that you do want to do is avoid artificially inflating your income in a year that the colleges are going to look at, again, the prior calendar year prior to when you're applying to college. Um, So, you know, if you're expecting a big bonus at work and you can defer it to a later date, that's something that you might want to consider. Um, you want to avoid trying to sell off uh, a bunch of stock if that's going to create a big capital gain on your tax return and kind of boost your income artificially in, in a year that the colleges are going to look at. Try to make those kind of financial moves that are going to increase your income either before or after the years that the colleges are going to look at. Um, if you do have to um, make some move that, that increases your income artificially, always appeal to the college's financial aid office to have that um, income boost kind of removed from the calculations. Um, I talked about this last time I was on the show. Um, Anything unusual um, that's kind of not typical of your income, you can ask them to remove that from the calculations. They don't have to, but it's at their discretion to do so. So if you do have to make a financial move like that in a year that the college is going to look at, always appeal to have it removed. Um, They don't have to again, but it's always worth asking the question. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much, Shannon. Uh, Shannon's going to be back and join me for the Q&A segment at the end of our show, so we're not going to say goodbye just yet. But after the break, former Holy Cross and Babson Senior Admissions Officer Kimberly Aselta is going to join me to talk about high schools and college admissions, so don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. So, hi, everybody. I'm really excited to welcome my colleague, Kimberly Aselta, here today. Hi, Kimberly. How are you? Hi, Beth. I'm good. Thanks. Great. Well, so the reason I'm super excited is, well, first of all, Kimberly is great, but also because we are going to be talking about something that is, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a myth in the college admissions process, but it's certainly a major concern for a lot of families and a question that I get asked, I would say, at least once a day, and that we get in um, on the uh, in the getting in website in, in the questions that people send in, we've already gotten a few questions about this. And that is really around how where a student's where a student attends high school impacts their college admissions, you know, whether it's good, bad. Um, there is a lot of concern about that. You know, one of the questions would be, you know, well, do, you, do the colleges understand that an B at this school is really like an A at the school down the street and things like that? So, um, Kimberly and I are going to talk about that today. And, and actually, Kimberly, my very first question for you is, does the high school that your child attends affect their college admissions? Yeah, and as you said, this is something people are constantly wondering about. And in the world of admission, our answers aren't always black and white. But I think for this one, a real simple answer is is simply attending a certain high school isn't going to guarantee admission, right? So colleges are looking at to, to admit students, not to admit high schools. So when we're looking at a student, we want to see more of what the student has done with what the high school has offered them than really just what high school have you attended. So as an admission officer, I was really trying to look at a student in the context of the school they're coming from, trying to figure out, hey, what kind of curriculum has been offered and what has this particular student done with what has been offered to them? So it's really about context, you know, where the student's coming from and trying to figure out what that student took advantage of. Right. So exactly. When I always used to tell people when I was at Penn, we're not going to penalize you for not taking AP Calculus BC if AP Calculus BC isn't available. But if it's available to you and you want to study engineering and you opted to take AP Stats instead of AP Calculus BC, that could be problematic for you. Exactly. So it's exactly right. It's con- It's all about the context. And um and just making the most of where you're at. So when parents ask you, you know, do they understand how hard this school is? And how do, or really what they're asking is, how do the colleges know my child's high school? So how do you answer them when they're asking you that? Right. And I think many times parents are surprised by sometimes how long my answer can be because admission officers are doing a lot to try to figure out what high schools are offering their students. So the first thing is that admission officers are out for six to eight weeks in the fall visiting Mm -hmm. across the world. At least when I was at Babson, we were pretty international school. So we had admission officers across the world visiting high schools, sitting down with guidance counselors, learning about what what the new courses were at the school, what many of the students students felt were the hardest courses at the school, sitting down and meeting students and really getting a feel for the high school, 
the curriculum that they offered, maybe some of the extracurriculars that they also offered, and the types of students that were there. So that's usually surprising to people. Like, really? You you actually have visited my high school? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're exactly. Really to know that. Really? You you know where my high school is? Um, and, and they will do that again in the spring, too. Maybe not as long, but they're out again in the spring, you know, learning more about the schools and the students that are there. The other thing that a lot of parents don't know and that I always encourage parents to go and do is find your school's profile. And the profile is actually a document that is created by usually the guidance office or the college counseling office at the high school that is a great overview of the high school, what the school offers, maybe sometimes a little bit about the community that the school is in, and will tell you here are the AP courses that we offer, or we don't offer AP or honors Mm -hmm. courses. All of our courses are taught at this certain level, and all students take this level. So I would know then, I'm not going to expect to see AP courses on this student's transcript because this school doesn't offer it. Another thing that was also great about the profile is they'll give you an idea, usually, about grading. So this many students have have received an A in this course, or this is what a 3.5 means at our school, so that Mm -hmm. you get a sense for how they're grading and maybe how many students have a certain grade point average. So you really get to know a school from that profile, and we really never read a transcript without first making sure we had a profile. And now that everything's online, that's really easy to find, even if that didn't come with a transcript. The other thing, too, is as part of at least the common application, there's a school report in there that your guidance counselor will fill out and attach to the letter that they're writing for you. And on that school report, it asks, is this student's curriculum the most challenging, very challenging, the least challenging in this high school compared to what Mm -hmm. other students are taking? So that's another indication of what that student's curriculum is compared to the other students in the school. So there's a lot of different points that we would use, and it was really the reader, the admission officer's responsibility to understand the high school that you were reading so that you really made a good decision on that transcript. Right, and I think what's really important about those points that you're making is that while, of course, we admissions officers, I'm not one anymore, but I used to do a lot of travel and visit a lot of schools, as did you, and those admissions officers continue to do that to this day. The fact is, of course, they can't get to every single high school in the country, and I know that sometimes parents get concerned, well, nobody applies to uh, that institution from our high school. They don't know us at all, or they never Mm -hmm. visit here, so they don't know us, when the reality is that maybe you don't know them as well, but you've got that profile, and that's really going to help you understand what that school is all about. Uh, And it might also surprise people to know that you'll love to get applications from that school that you haven't gotten an application from in years or maybe never gotten an application from. Um, You'd rather not fill your class with students from all of, you know, 30 high schools. You want to fill your class with students from all over the country and all over the world. And um, so it actually can work to your advantage to be applying from a school that hasn't traditionally sent applicants to that college in the past. Sure, exactly, because we would make some real strategic decisions before we went out to travel. And I did Connecticut for 12 years for both Holy Cross and for Babson. And mm-hmm. there were schools that I just didn't need to visit that year, right? We, we mm-hmm. had a steady flow of applications. I was comfortable with the school. I knew the guidance counselors. I could skip that school for a year. 
mm-hmm. and maybe I would go and find a school that we hadn't received applications from and then decide to visit that school for a couple of years to try to you know, get some more applications there. But right. you're right. I mean, just because you aren't visiting that year or you haven't visited doesn't mean that you don't know that score that you wouldn't love to have a student from that school apply and come to your school. Exactly. And and there are definitely schools that have cut back on their budgets for travel and maybe they don't send people out as frequently anymore. And this doesn't mean that they don't know the school or that they're not interested in the school or that they have a vendetta against the school. It's really a matter of resources. And, you know, I used to travel in Connecticut as well. And, and I know that there were just some days where I couldn't face a fourth school visit. So I would schedule three for the day and be done. And right. I apologize to the school that would have been the fourth. But um, I do know that when the applications came in, I was well-versed in that school, even if I hadn't seen it that year. Exactly. So. Exactly. So you you did touch briefly on something in terms of the grading system. And um, yeah, I don't want to go too far down this road because we have a couple of other things we want to cover and talk about today. But, um, you know, different schools do grade differently. And um, you and I had an interesting conversation about this when we were preparing for today's segment. And um, we were talking about the way our schools did things. And it was interesting to me that we did things differently, but the end result was the same. So mm-hmm. um, when when a student's application came in, when their transcript came in, tell me about how did you guys deal with the grades that were on the transcript? So at both Holy Cross and Babson, we were looking at the grades, again, in the context of the way they were coming on that transcript. So we did not do any recalculation. If we were looking at a grades that were on a 4.0 scale, that's how we were looking at them. If the school was grading on a 100-point or a 12-point scale, and especially being at Babson where, as I said earlier, we were receiving applications from around the world, there are so many different grading scales out there. So Again, trying to figure out, you know, what does a 4.0 mean at this school? What does an A mean at this school? How many students can actually achieve that A? And trying to figure that out from, again, the profile and looking at the student's transcript. So we, again, would just be looking at it, how it came in, not, not trying to recalculate anything. But then you were saying that you did that differently. Yeah, so at Penn, we did recalculate GPAs. We pulled out the grades um, from the academic classes. We unweighted them if they had been weighted, uh, and we recalculated a new GPA. However, the point is we never looked at those grades in, in you know, away from the rigor of the curriculum. So even though we might have unweighted a grade uh, that was for an AP class, we always made note of the fact that the student had taken the AP class. And so even though two students might both have a 4.0 and one have lots of APs and honors and the other just have college prep, the student with just the college prep was never going to be competitive at Penn. There are plenty of schools where that student would be very competitive with a 4.0, but at Penn. um, But remember that calculation you mentioned before, the most rigorous curriculum available, maybe just a challenging curriculum, those pieces we also noted. And so nothing was ever viewed in a vacuum. And I think the bottom line here is that we dealt with whatever the high school gave us. We worked with that. Uh, We we weren't flummoxed if the school didn't give grades or if they used a 12-point grading scale or a five-point grading scale. We had our own way of converting it, but we dealt with whatever they gave us, which is essentially what you guys did as well. Exactly. And I think an important point, too, and sometimes students will 
say, well, my school doesn't weight our GPA. How, is, how are the colleges going to know that I've taken these APR honors courses? Or you know, students get really kind of upset and worried and stressed out about how their school reports things. And I always tell families, I wasn't just looking at your GPA as a standalone. It was way mm-hmm. more than that. I was really dissecting, and I used to sit there with my highlighter, dissecting your, your transcript. You know, what courses did the student take? At what level did they take those courses? What grades did they receive? And you were getting some points for your grades. You were getting points for your curriculum. And then however your GPA was given to me, I was using that to get a sense for how you compared to the other students in, in your high school graduating class. So there's a lot more going into it than just taking the face value of a GPA. So we're running out of time, but I do want to dig into this because you mentioned school group, and I also want to bring up that, that terrible word that people love to get concerned about and throw around, and that's quotas. So mm-hmm. um, you mentioned comparing students to other students from their school. Um, talk a little bit about, if you could, talk a little bit about that, school groups. <laughs> Sure. So a school group is basically a group of applicants that all come from the same high school. And at some schools, you just find that a great number of students are applying from that high school to that college. And although I would not read school groups as a, as a group one after another, I sort of read applications as they became complete. At the end of every week of reading, I would go back and pull out all of the applications from that school and just make sure that the decisions that I had made over the week made sense. And, and I think the big thing here is it made sense to me and it made sense to what my admission team was trying to achieve in creating a class. It may not have made sense to someone from the outside looking in, but making sure that all of the decisions that I made made sense for us. Um, and a big, big thing that you mentioned is quotas. And I had said to you, I remember getting into a pretty heated discussion with a member of um, my family over, you, there has to be a quota. You know, you can't take everyone that applies from a high school. And I, I was trying to explain, I, I certainly could. If, if all four applicants from one high school were all compelling in different, for different reasons, and we wanted all of them, we would take them all. If all yep. four weren't compelling, maybe we wouldn't take all four that year. And nobody was ever telling me you can only take a certain amount of students from this high school. That never happened in my 12 years. So it's or, really the reader trying to figure out who's going to be the right match, right fit for this, for us, for our school. Right. And I think on the flip side of that, no one ever said you must admit a student from this school. Right. If there was no one compelling from um, a particular school, you wouldn't admit them that year. And um, to the people who always, you know, get themselves worked up about quotas, I would point to there was a school I remember very well from my time at Penn for um, in one year, uh, nobody was admitted. We had probably about six or seven applicants. Now, none of them were admitted. The following year, four people applied, and we admitted all four. So which is Penn? Did we admit nobody from that high school ever, or did we admit everyone who applies? And I would guess that two separate rumors got started based on the results from those two years. Sure. Um, and I think to, to underscore what you were saying, the fact is that every college out there is looking to admit uh, the best applicant pool for them. And that's going to mean different things at different colleges. And it might mean that at a school that's really big and um, has lots of space available, they might literally admit 100 students from a particular high school if those 100 students are competitive. Um, 
And another school might admit none from that high school in a given year because no one who was in their applicant pool looked like someone that made sense for their class that year. Um, exactly. So it changes every year. And um, it's really bottom line I will leave you with here because we are running out of time is simply for our listeners, uh, you want to make the most of where you're at. Uh, take the courses that make sense for you, get involved in extracurricular activities, and don't worry too much about where you go to school because it's really going to be about you and not where you go to school. All right. So thank you so much again, Kimberly. And we're going to be back in just a few minutes to answer your admissions and financial aid questions. So don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. So while this hour is flying by, and I can't believe it's already time for Q&A, but it is, and as I promised, Shannon Vasconcellos is back with me, and we're going to start with a question for her, and it's something that came in related to our earlier segment on financial aid advice that's a little too good to be true, Uh, and this is one I hear too, what about getting in-state tuition at an out-of-state college? So, you know, that... I'm going to go to an out-of-state college, and once I get there, I'm living there. So does that mean I qualify for in-state tuition? Unfortunately not. Um, Every state has their own regulations, but they all tend to say things like living in the state primarily for educational purposes does not qualify you for in-state tuition. Uh, Also, just about every state bases the residency of their students on the residency of the students' parents. Um, so, you know, for most college students, um, you know, if you're thinking about going to an out-of-state school, your parents live out-of-state, you're attending the school primarily for educational purposes, you are never going to qualify for in-state tuition. Um, now, every state does have a process where you can appeal to receive in-state tuition, 
um, but they do tend to make it difficult. Um, you generally have to have lived there for a certain amount of time. It's often a year um, before you can even think about appealing. And then you do have to be able to prove that you are truly financially independent of your parents uh, and that you have moved to the state you know, fairly permanently, that you're not just there to attend school. Um, you know, there are some states that are more strict than others, so definitely check the regulations of the state that you might be considering attending school in. Um, they're definitely posted on, you know, all of the state school websites, so you can track down that information. Um, but I generally recommend if you're going to try to appeal to gain residency, you make sure that you've got all your ducks in a row. You know, make sure you've changed your driver's license over to that state, your car registration, you've registered to vote in that state, you're on a lease, all those sorts of things that will make your case stronger. But my general rule of thumb, when you're looking at colleges and trying to decide if you're going to go out of state, don't ever count on gaining uh, in-state tuition at an out-of-state school. Uh, don't enroll in a college that you can't afford, assuming that you'll eventually get the lower tuition maybe next year, because um, it's probably not going to happen. Public colleges really count on the tuition of out-of-state students to keep them running, so they don't make it particularly easy to gain residency. So, again, you can always appeal, but don't count on it. They do make it difficult. Gotcha. Okay, so um, last week I had Jake Newberg on, and he is the co-founder and co-CEO of Revolution Prep, and we use them. We refer a lot of students to them for test prep. And we were talking about planning ahead for standardized tests, and a question came in uh, over the week about subject tests because we didn't touch on that. And so people were asking, you know, when do students start thinking about those? And so um, I advise that students start to think about subject tests. First of all, only a handful of colleges in this country require subject tests. It's really not a common requirement. And subject tests used to be called achievement tests for those parents listening. Um, They're one-hour tests in a particular subject area uh, like math or... um, chemistry or Spanish. And uh, like I said, they're not typically required. At some schools, they may be recommended, but they're still not an absolute requirement for the admissions process. Uh, But the ideal preparation for a subject test is usually going to be at minimum an honors level course. Uh, So a regular level biology course is not usually going to be adequate preparation for a subject test in biology. Uh, But the honors level might be, and even better, would likely be an AP biology course or maybe an IB, an International Baccalaureate course in biology. So when you're looking at your schedule for the year, you want to take a look at, well, I'm taking AP um, biology in my sophomore year because I took uh, regular level biology as a freshman. In May of my sophomore year, I may want to take that subject test. That would be a good time to do it. Uh, Usually people are going to take the subject test some point at the end of their junior year. Um, But again, if you're taking more advanced level coursework throughout your high school career, it might make sense to take them uh, at the end of the year if if you're taking an AP level course. Um, Maybe honors pre-calculus would be adequate preparation for the Math 2 subject test. Um, The point is that you want to be doing it at the end of the year when you've just finished the coursework. Uh, And uh, so in order to think about that, you just need to be planning ahead and you need to probably do some prep as well for that. At least pick up a prep, a test prep book. Um, 
And then, Shannon, I don't have another finance-related question for you today. I did have one more question come in uh, in the time we have left about activities, which is something that um, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and a parent wrote in to ask about, what you know, what do you do if you have a kid who isn't a joiner? And um, there are definitely those kids out there. They don't really want to um, be part of the French club, or they don't want to do chess, or they don't want to play a sport, and they just don't see the point of it all. And so my advice for a kid who's not really a joiner is get a job. A part-time job can be a really great way for that student to get involved. Um, They often do see the point of a job, which is money. They get money in their pocket at the end. They go in, they work for half an hour, and then they get money. Um, And from a college perspective, a job is a great way to spend uh, your time outside of the classroom. I would say if the only thing the student is going to do is work, that they should work probably a minimum of somewhere between 12 to 15 hours. Hours, uh, because that's a lot of the time that other students are going to be spending on those clubs uh, and those things that they're doing. All right. So uh, thanks again for joining us for getting in a College Coach Conversation. Shannon, thanks for joining us for the Q&A segment. I appreciate you being here. You're very welcome. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about getting the most out of your college visits, and I'm going to have someone on who is an expert. His name is Bill Rubin, and he has visited more than 1,800 colleges and universities in the U.S., Canada, and Europe, and he runs a tour company. So we're going to talk to him about that. We're also going to talk about searching for private scholarships, um, the athletic recruitment process, and of course, we're going to take your questions at the end of the show. Uh, so send them to us at gettingin.voiceamerica@gmail.com. And look forward to you joining us next week. We're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Good week.